Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We are working through the Sermon on the Mount, and now we are working through the Lord's Prayer. If you look this over, you'll probably understand what I'm doing. I'm going to skip verse 13. We'll save that for next week, Lord willing. I'm going to cover verse 12 and verses 14 and 15, since they all have to do with forgiveness of sins or of debts. But I'm going to read the whole prayer all the way through verse 15. I'm going to start in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for many of us, we grew up praying and having this prayer memorized and saying it perhaps many hundreds of times in our lives. And with things like that, they can become precious, but they can also become sort of rote in our memory. And so I pray that you would help us to see uh, the just significant truth of this text today, that it would not seem like something that is old or dusty, but that it would be fresh in our own uh, ears and in our heart. And I pray that you'd be honored in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Puritan Thomas Watson, I've mentioned him, he wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer, and he said in his book, he pointed out that in in this list of requests in the Lord's Prayer, there is one request for our physical needs to be met, followed by two for spiritual needs. He says, I don't think this is an accident. The physical body matters. Uh, Physical needs absolutely matter. But he says, listen, the spiritual needs are of utmost importance, and they dominate the end of this prayer. Today, our passage is verse 12, and then, of course, 14 and 15 following. But let's look again at verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, you'll see here the word used for sin is the word debts. If you look at verse 14 and 15, it's a different word. Same in Greek as in English, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So you've got the word debts, you've got the word trespasses, and when Luke records, uh, he has a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, verse, seven, verse 4, and G- Jesus there says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. 
Now, I, I want to point this out. Three different words, three different Greek words, three different English words, at least in the ESV, and they, they point to the fact that these three words refer to the same basic reality, but they don't mean precisely exactly the same thing. To trespass is to violate some command or standard. To, 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 you, know, you think of no trespassing. You're not supposed to go here, and, and someone violates that clear, um, that clear guideline. Sin literally meaning to miss the mark. Uh, sin meaning to not do what you are supposed to do. But the word in verse 12, I've found to be interesting this week, the word debts. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this as we go, but we must remember that all sin puts us in debt to God. And the debt that we owe to God for sin is a debt that we left to ourselves cannot pay. You know, there are some, some debts, maybe you get in some kind of hope this doesn't happen, some kind of legal trouble, you've got to pay some debt. Well, if that happens, it may be something that you can pay over time. But when we are talking about sin, we're talking about something that is committed against an infinitely holy and righteous and good God, and therefore the debt is unimaginable. I just want to give a quick illustration before we jump into the main part of the sermon. I heard this, I think, in one of the American Gospel documentaries. So you may have heard this if you've seen those. But I thought this was a great illustration. It captures the idea. Uh, one young man in the documentary said, he said, imagine you go illegally into a junkyard. I know there's a junkyard a few miles down the road here. You go, you go illegally into a junkyard, and you walk up to an old wrecked car that's been sitting there for 15 years, and it's a pile of junk, and maybe they're using it for some spare parts, but it looks pretty, pretty dilapidated. And you walk up to this rusty hunk of car, that's whatever's left, and he says, you walk up to it, and you take your car keys out, and you just scrape a big scratch right down the passenger door all the way to the back door, and you just stand there, and you, you, you walk away. He said, well, you could get caught for that. Theoretically, you could get in trouble for that. That might even be some kind of misdemeanor or something, but at the end of the day, you're probably not going to get in a lot of trouble for scratching an old wrecked car in a junkyard. You might, but it's not that big of a deal. People probably won't think too much of it. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying. And then he says, imagine this. Imagine you go to a used car lot, all right? So you got some used Honda there. It's a decent car. Might be worth $10,000. It's like, okay, you walk up to that car, and he says, and without any permission, you walk up to the driver's door, you scratch straight down the side of the car with your keys, leaving a huge gash on the side of the car. Did it just get worse? It did. It's the same crime in one sense, right? You're just scratching someone else's car, but it, it was worse. What you just did in, in the used car lot is worse. And he said, imagine going to a Lamborghini lot or whatever your favorite multi-hundred-thousand-dollar car lot is. You go to some Lamborghini lot or Ferrari lot, you walk up to the Lamborghini, and without any permission, you pull out your car keys, and you scrape right down the side of the Lamborghini from the front tire to the back tire. Are you in real big trouble now? Yes, you are. Same kind of act, same crime in one sense, but the punishment gets more severe. Why? It's not because you're doing anything different. You're doing the same thing. It's what you're doing it to that makes the difference. And we must understand from a biblical worldview Listen to me. You're not going to hear this anywhere, on, anywhere out in the, in the media. You're not going to hear this in our culture. Sin is not fundamentally about what it does to other people. That is not what makes your sin bad. It does make it bad. When we sin against someone, you lie about someone, you gossip about someone, that is a sin against that person, and it is serious. But that's not what makes sin really serious in the biblical worldview. What makes sin serious is not so much the act itself, but who the act is ultimately against. And when David committed adultery and had the husband killed to try to cover it up, Bathsheba and Uriah, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, and David says that amazing sentence that doesn't even make sense at first, 
in his confession of that sin in Psalm 51. Who had David sinned against? Well, he had sinned against Bathsheba. Had he sinned against her husband Uriah? Yeah, he had him, had him murdered after, after, after committing adultery. Then did he lie about it, try to cover it up? Did it result in all kinds of consequences? His young child died. All kinds. David, it's hard to think of who David did not sin against. But what does David say? You know this, this, the, the quote, against you in his prayer. He says, God, against you and you only, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you might be righteous in your judgment and that you might be right when you pass judgment. Do you, do you understand this? Our sin is a debt not mainly because of what it does to our neighbor, although that matters. Infinitely more important, it's not the Lamborghini, Every sin is against a God of infinite glory and majesty who right now is upholding the universe by the word of His power. That's the God we offend, and we accrue a debt. The smallest sin isn't so bad because of what it is, but because of who it's against. And the smallest sin against infinite majesty and infinite holiness is worthy of infinite punishment. That is why Jesus calls hell in Matthew 25, 46. Jesus says hell is, he says, some will depart for everlasting life. Then he uses the same Greek word for everlasting, and some will depart for everlasting punishment. This is not overkill. This is not an overstatement. It's not God losing his temper. It's God having a right view of what the smallest sin is against infinite majesty. And the answer is it accrues a debt and that debt is serious. Do you understand how serious the debt of your personal sin is against God? If you were left to stand before God with your debts hanging over your head, do you understand what that would be like, what that would feel like to stand before God with the thunder and the lightning and the angels and to, to give an account for your evil thoughts and your evil deeds with no way to get out of the trouble that you are in? That is where we are all heading apart from Christ. And Jesus, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew wants us to read ahead. On the cross, Jesus is going to pay an infinite debt against sin because he is infinite. He is the God-man. And when the God-man dies on a cross, Jesus can do something in six hours on a Friday afternoon that it would take all of eternity for you and I to do, which is to absorb all of God's righteous judgment against our sin and to drink the cup of God's just wrath dry, leaving not a drop for any and all who will turn and trust in His finished work. So if you hear anything today, when we pray, forgive us our debts, we must understand what an infinite thing we are talking about. I mean, God, frankly, rests lightly on many of our minds during the week. We can think about all kinds of things that matter to us. A stain on the carpet sometimes matters more than honoring a holy God. Our priorities are so out of whack with reality. And Scripture is a lightning bolt to waken us to the reality that the most urgent need that our world has and that you and I have is that our debts before God be canceled because Jesus paid it all. That's the number one need in your life and in my life. And for us to be able to say as believers in Christ, to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my debts have been paid. I know that I stand righteous before God. Do you understand the infinity of grace that is in your mouth when you say that? It's astonishing to think that right now, those in Christ, still flawed like I am, can stand before God clothed in the finished righteousness of Jesus with not any wrath to pay because all our debts have been canceled and taken care of by Jesus. That is astonishing news. 
So let's look here. The sermon will just have two basic points today. Number one, we must pray for daily forgiveness. And number two, we must forgive as God has forgiven us. We must pray for daily forgiveness, and we must forgive as God has forgiven us. So point number one, we must pray for daily forgiveness. Before I get too far into this, let me just make a distinction here. I'll just give an example. Psalm 19, you can turn there if you want to. Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13 simply say this. The psalmist says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Seems like you have hidden faults, but then you have these presumptuous sins, these, these, these willful and presumptuous sins. So I, I want to try to make a distinction here, and we'll try to unpack this as we go. What is the relationship day by day between a genuine Christian and sin? This is a controversial issue the more you think about how these pieces work together. So, so here's the first thing that we can say. Those who willfully, presumptuously, flagrantly, numbers, the book of Numbers will speak of sinning with a high hand, deliberately willful sinning. Deliberate willful sinning without repentance over time and not responding to rebuke or correction begins to become a sign that a person may not know the Lord and at a certain point does not know the Lord. If someone says, I know this is sinful, I'm going to do it and I frankly don't care, God's a forgiving God, I want to live this lifestyle of sin, don't stop me. That is not the way a Christian talks. And a presumptuous, willful a life of, of a pattern of sinful lifestyle, making a practice of sin, First John says. Those who willfully pursue and indulge in sin, and they just say, I know Scripture says otherwise, I don't want to be bothered by that, I want to live this way. Those individuals should not have assurance of salvation. Those individuals should be frightened that they, they, that they may not know the Lord, and they need to repent and, and, and have an assurance of salvation upon repentance and fleeing to the cross of Christ. Christians can occasionally, horrifically, commit these willful sins, but they, must, but they are momentary things. They cannot be lifelong patterns. They cannot be unbroken things, and these are things that we should avoid at all costs. David's adultery and murder was horrific high-handed sin, but he did not stay there. He repented, and he moved, and he moved towards godliness again and repented with Psalm 51. That's one level, the high-handed presumptuous sins. Those are not the mark of a Christian. Unrepentant, willful sinning is not the mark of a Christian. That's why church discipline occurs in those circumstances. But there's another category. Psalm 19 calls it hidden faults. You could call it just mixed motives. The best Christian in the world has never done a godly act with perfectly sinless motives. Ever in the history of the world, before, before death and our arrival in heaven, you will not pray a prayer that has perfect motives once in this life. You will not attend church with perfect thoughts, perfect love to God, absolute devotion to God, every molecule in your body, perfectly loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength without fail, no flaws, no sin anywhere to be seen for, us for five minutes of your life. R.C. Sproul said that. You've never gone five minutes without a mixed motive or a self-centered thought. You know how this is, right? Those kinds of things are the things that haunt us, that we fight as Christians. Jerry Bridges said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. 
You, you cannot out God's grace if you will simply repent. If you will simply repent right now, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. But listen to the next part. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. After your best time of prayer you've ever had, you were weeping in your room alone for the salvation of someone you love. When you get off your knees, there's that proud thought that says, wow, that was a long prayer. I did pretty good. You know what I'm talking about? That stuff is just there. We're always fighting pride and sinful motives. And did they see that? And All that stuff is always, that's what we're trying to put to death by God's grace day by day. Jerry Bridges also said, this, this is moving, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Because even there, it's not perfection yet. Now listen, this does not mean we should just give up. I'm never going to be absolutely sinlessly perfect in this life. I'll just throw in the towel. Who wants to play a game where you feel like you're losing? That's not what we're saying. In the New Testament, it is very clear. We, are, we, we should be growing in holiness. One of our favorite verses here is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. That's progress in holiness. So every day we're looking to Jesus. We want to see Him with the veil taken away. All the, all the boredom we feel about Jesus is a veil. It's sin. It's callousness. We want the veil torn away so we can see the glory of God in the face of Christ, be moved by it, stirred by it, transformed by it from one degree of glory to the next as we become more and more like Jesus. This process comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And as this process goes, grows over time, we also grow in our awareness of the debt of our sin. Some of you have seen this slide or a slide like this, I'm sure, in your past. The arrow pointing down right here is the idea of when you were converted, and growth in the Christian life is, is, is heading in this direction here. This does not, please do not, there's a huge way you could misunderstand this slide. There's a danger in even showing this. This could sound, if you don't read it correctly, it could be sounding like you are getting worse and more sinful as you grow. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, first of all, God is not getting more holy the longer you're a Christian. He is already infinitely holy, more than our wildest dreams, more than we've ever been able to comprehend. God is holy. And at the same time, listen to me, the debt of sin that we owe God is far more vast than we have ever felt in our worst moment of guilt. We have never yet begun to scratch the surface of the depths of the sin and the debt that we owe to God. So part of, it's not all there is to the Christian life, but part of the Christian life is that when you first become a Christian, you get some glimpse of, I'm really bad. Remember David Pallison, that great Christian counselor? He had been like, I think maybe a Marxist or something in the the 1960s, and he was like all involved in the cultural revolution of the 1960s, the sexual revolution. He, He had a friend who became a Christian. And he said for five years, from like age 20 to 25, he kept up this debate with his friend, his best friend who became a Christian. They debated the truth of Christianity for five years. And David Pallison said, I still remember, by the grace of God, the night when my friend won the argument. He said, we were sitting there, and we had gone around the the usual mulberry bush of apologetics and the reliability of the New Testament and the historicity of the resurrection. He said, I could always dodge out of every argument. I go, well, what if this? What if that? He was always dodging away. He's a smart guy, David Pallison. But he said, all of a sudden, my friend looked at me, and with uncharacteristic uh, directness, he said, David, the way that you are living and what you are doing you are destroying your life because of all the patterns of sin that we're building up. He said, you are destroying yourself. 
And David said, it hit me with Holy Spirit power in that moment. He said, I fell under immense conviction of sin. And then this is the part I love. He said, that night, I got in my car. He had prayed. He said, I, I prayed a desperate, God be merciful to me, a sinner prayer. And he said, I got in my car. I'm driving back home late at night. He says, late at night, driving. I, I assume he was alone. And he said, on the way home, he had no sense, oh, I've just become a Christian. He didn't have that clear clarity yet. He's just driving home, and he goes, huh, that's interesting. You know, I've never thought of myself as a sinner before. That was the first time in his whole life on the way home when he'd just become a Christian, the first time he ever thought of himself as a sinner, like as someone who needs God's salvation. And he said, I went to bed that night, and I woke up the next morning, and he said, I was absolutely flooded with joy. And he said, I had this sense that I'd been walking hot, dusty roads for years that led nowhere, thinking I didn't want God in my life, but then found out finally that God was the one I was really looking for and that God had brought me home. He said, I'm home. I'm a Christian. So when you first become a Christian, you start to see the, the, how sinful you are, the, the, the debt of sin that you owe to God. And then you start to see how holy God is. And I, I don't know about you. I hope this is true of all of us. If you've been a Christian for a period of years, I hope you look back and you can say, I know more of God's holiness now than I did five years ago. And I hope you can say, I know more of what God's rescued me from in the darkness of my own fallen nature, I know more of my sin nature and what it is capable of than I did five years ago. And what happens is the bridge that holds the gap is the cross. And the more we grow in our awareness of God's holiness, and the more we grow in our awareness of how sinful we are, especially left to ourselves, but even today, the, the guilt that still remains, as we see more and more of that gap, we see how great and massive the cross was to hold that gap together of God on one side, our sin on the other, and this unbridgeable chasm that only the cross could conquer. And we can walk across that bridge of the cross and be saved. And the cross is actually infinite. The distance between God's holiness and our sinfulness is literally infinite. And we will grow eternally in our awareness of how great that is. Now, here's the irony of this, of this, of this little idea here. Here's the irony. As we grow in these things, we actually become more and more like Jesus. That's the strange thing. So, as we actually become more like Christ… We actually see our sin more clearly, and we see the gravity of our evil more clearly as we're actually growing in Christ-likeness. Does that make any sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not that we're becoming a worse and worse person. It's that we're more and more aware of the depths of our sin and more and more in awe of Christ and more and more growing in our love of Jesus and our desire to honor and follow and worship the Lord Jesus in our lives. Philippians 3, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this, the resurrection, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's been a Christian when he writes this, what? more than 20 years, and Paul says, I'm not yet perfect. I'm not. But that doesn't make me give up hope. That makes me want to press on all the more. Jesus has grabbed hold of me for my salvation, and now I want to press on with all that I have, forgetting what's behind, not getting you know, held back by past guilt, being freed by the cross and pressing on to know Christ better and to pursue Him more fully. So when Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Let's not miss the beginning of the sentence in verse 11. This is Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. 
I don't think that's an accident that those go together. How often should we pray for God's name to be hallowed? Every day. I mean, that's the ideal. How often should we pray for His kingdom to come? Every day. His will to be done? Every day. How often should we pray not to be led into temptation? Every day. How often should we pray for daily bread? Every day. How often are we supposed to pray for our debts to be forgiven? Every day. Why? Because we still fall short. Even on our best day, we pray, God, He doesn't even say, forgive us our one sin for the day. Forgive us our debts is in the plural. Every day we're accruing debts because of the lack of being glorified at this point, and we still need God's grace on a daily basis. Let me just flood you with quotes. You ready? From, from pastor theologians. You ready? I'm just going to flood you with a bunch of quotes saying almost the same thing. Steve Lawson, quote, if we ask for daily bread, then we should ask for daily forgiveness. Matthew Henry, we must pray for daily pardon as duly as we pray for daily bread. Puritan scholar Joel Beakey, great theologian, we need forgiveness every single day. Kevin DeYoung, we need daily bread that we might live and daily forgiveness that we might not die. If we ask every day for bread, it stands to reason that we also ask God every day for grace for our debts. Some Christians may ask, why, if we have already been redeemed, cleansed, and justified, do we need to keep asking for forgiveness? I remember well at my church a godly woman who objected to our weekly confession of sin in the service. She thought it was a real downer and encouraged wallowing in our sins when God wanted us to know, uh, when God wanted us to know we were forgiven and free. She believed it was wrong for justified sinners to return to their sins over and over. So why does Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our debts? And not just once, but frequently. Well, for starters, we still struggle with sin. We ask for forgiveness for a debt because we never stop being debtors. I'm not done yet. John Piper, quote, Jesus assumes that we need to seek forgiveness virtually every time we pray because nothing we do is perfect. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the last century, Quote, the greater the saint, well, listen to this, see if it matches this chart behind us. This is Lloyd-Jones from, I don't know, 80 years ago. The greater the saint, the greater is the sense of sin and awareness of sin within. The greater the saint, the more godly and holy someone is, the greater the sense of sin and the awareness of sin within. J.C. Ryle, we confess that we are sinners and need daily grants of pardon and forgiveness. We are instructed here to keep up a continual habit of confession at the throne of grace and a continual habit of seeking mercy in remission of sins. Charles Spurgeon, no man may pass a day without praying, forgive. And in his supplication, he should not forget his fellow sinners, but should pray, forgive us. Lord, forgive me and my brother over there who says he is perfect. <laughs> forgive me and also forgive the Christian perfectionist over there. Uh, James Boyce, one of the great preachers of the last century. Unfortunately, he says, there are Christians who feel that sin can be eradicated in the Christian life during this life. And since they generally apply this to themselves, they therefore come to believe erroneously that they no longer need this forgiveness. That is wrong, of course, and the fact that the Lord Jesus directed all His disciples to seek forgiveness refutes it. And one last quote from Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones says, "'Having been justified, as we walk through this world, we become soiled and tarnished by sin.'" That is true of every Christian. That we know we have been forgiven, we need forgiveness still for particular sins and failures. The man who does not know the blackness of his own heart is a man who has not examined himself truly. The greater the saint, the greater is the sense of sin and the awareness of sin within. All right, let's move on to point number two. We must forgive 
as God has forgiven us. We must forgive as God has forgiven us. Now, that that point may sound strange based on our verse. I'll explain why I said it that way. I don't know if this, if this strikes you as odd, the way Jesus speaks here, but let's, let's look at it one more time. Let's look at verses 12, 14, and 15 of Matthew 6. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, that is shocking. Jesus says, I mean, imagine what we're actually praying. God, I want you to forgive me as thoroughly as I forgive other people. Wow, that's a scary standard to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Look at verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't know if that's shocking to you. Maybe we hear this so often in these verses that we're not shocked by it, but that's pretty amazing. If you are characterized by being an unforgiving person, and you die in that state, it doesn't matter what you've professed to believe or how many sinners' prayers you've prayed, Jesus says you will not be forgiven on the final day of judgment. If you are an unforgiving person, you will be unforgiven by God on the final day. That's what the text… If the text says anything, that's what that text says. For if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. In other words, forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgive, forgiven people are forgiving people. We, we must forgive. Now, now, let me just say as clearly as I can, throughout the Sermon on the Mount and all throughout the Bible, Jesus assumes that if I have truly met Him and repented and believed in Him, it's going to change my life permanently and dramatically. And if there is no permanent transformation following my so-called conversion, you know what hasn't happened, I have not been converted. And so, one of the marks of a Christian is that we become forgiving people. And by the way, again, this is not shocking. If you look at chapter 5 of of the Sermon on the Mount, let me remind you of a couple verses regarding lust in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is going to be the intense part of the sermon in terms of application here, but please hear me. I think I am saying what Jesus is saying. If lust controls you and you're not fighting lust, that is the mark of someone who does not know Jesus. An unrepentant lust that just controls your life for the indefinite future is the mark of someone who will not go to heaven when they die. It doesn't matter if they grew up in church, prayed the prayer at youth camp, and have signed the card and know all the Bible verses you can imagine and can can spout theology when they're in their sleep. If there is absolute control of sin in your life, whether it be lust or unforgiveness or whatever, just sin just controls you. You do not yet know the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying here, that the the gospel transforms us. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we're fighting. You know, there's two ways to think of it. Either I am friends with my sin… And I'm resisting God, or I'm friends with God resisting my sin. You can be imperfect, have imperfect motives, and even occasionally fall into just real serious sin as a Christian, but you cannot ultimately be friends with the world. You have to ultimately be friends with God fighting your sin 
not friends with your sin, fighting against God. Those are the only ultimate two options in this life. In Matthew 7, the same sermon, you can flip over to Matthew 7, verse 17. So every healthy tree, that's a Christian, bears good fruit. But the diseased tree, that's an unbeliever, bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then, I will, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those who are controlled by lawlessness, Jesus says, he will not recognize as his own on the last day. But those who are fighting it and repentant and seeking God's help and deliverance, those are those who bear good fruit and show themselves truly to be the disciples of Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew 18, Matthew chapter 18. Do you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? I think this is a a perfect explanation of what Jesus means in our text for today. So, let me, let me read this parable. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, here's the parable, verse 23 of Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's an unimaginable amount of money. We're talking like a billion dollars, something that's an unimaginable amount of money, 10,000 talents. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of, the serv- of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He forgave him, a massive debt. But when, the same ser- when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So, a hundred denarii, that's closer to like, you know, half a year's pay or something along those, a third of a year's pay. Still a decent amount of money. Tens of thousands of dollars, kind of an idea here. So, uh, found a man who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Do you understand the point? God has forgiven us an unimaginable debt, an unimaginable debt, infinite debt. If I claim 
to have been forgiven by God an infinite debt of sin, worthy of eternal punishment. And I believe that. That's true of me. And then I turn around, and someone wrongs me. I don't even care how severe it may be, and there are very severe ways people could wrong each other. If I am wronged by another person, and I just want to take it out on them, I just want to hold bitterness, I want to slander them, I just want to make them pay, I'm I'm furious at this person. Jesus would say, you don't yet understand what you claim is true of you. See, if you under, this is a huge deal. If, if, this is the main practical point of the sermon is how we forgive, how can we forgive other people? How's that possible? Now, I say this to people uh, numerous times I've said this. When someone has really wronged you, it, it's extraordinarily difficult to forgive. I think it was one, one author said, Christians, everyone loves the idea of forgiveness until you have to do it, Right? So if someone really has wronged you, and you just, you're seething inwardly, how in the world do you get the ability to forgive from your heart? And the answer is, you've got to focus on what God has done for you. If you think that your debt against God is smaller than this person's debt against you, you will never forgive this person. Do you hear that? If, if you think that the debt this person owes you for their sin is larger than the debt you owe God for your sin, you will never be able to forgive that person. Does that make sense? If I can, I mean, I mean, truly, as an act of God opening my eyes, if I can truly see the debt God has forgiven me of is literally infinite, unimaginably great, that will give us the amazing supernatural emotional capacity to turn around and forgive what would otherwise be unforgivable in another person who is seeking reconciliation. I have to be just drenched in the love of Christ, drenched in the forgiveness of God, amazed by the incredible, that, that chart that we looked at, amazed at the amazing amount God has done for me. And then from that power, I can turn and forgive other people. Here's another kind of forgiveness that's maybe even more difficult. It's one thing when someone wrongs you horrifically one time. It's another thing when someone wrongs you over and over and over, even in less serious ways. Those are some of the hardest kinds to deal with. Because you say, I've, I've forgiven you like Peter said. Is seven enough? <laughs> Jesus, if I'm, am I do, seven's the perfect number, Jesus. Is, if I do seven times, if I forgive, that's pretty good. And Jesus says, not even close. It's seven times seven or 77 or however you do that. It, it's, it's endless. And so we, we've got to see God's... Like, you understand, God doesn't just forgive you when you become a Christian. His forgiveness is, is past, present, and future, but God continues to bear with us and restore fellowship with us every time we turn back to Him. And when we can soak in that reality, and that's real to us, we can then show that in lesser ways to those around us who need forgiveness from us. A couple things I want to say here. Ephesians 4.32, you don't have to turn there. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. John Stott says this great quote, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. It's when we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others that it proves we have minimized our own offenses against God. Now, let me just say a couple things forgiveness does not mean. Number one, forgiveness, so so this is coming from another writer, 
Forgiveness always rules out personal vengeance. Always rules out we should never seek personal vengeance. But number two, it does not necessarily always rule out, say, legal punishment. If a person has committed a serious crime, it is not necessarily wrong. You can forgive someone and still have uh, perhaps legal consequences that would happen as a result of that. Also, forgiveness doesn't always mean completely forgetting. Sometimes we, we get loose with our language. Forgive and forget. Well, I know what that means, but, but it doesn't mean that we're naive. If someone has been characteristically untrustworthy, we don't just act like they're to be trusted, okay? There needs to be kind of a wisdom and, and a judiciousness and a wisdom in the way that we deal with people who have wronged us. It doesn't mean we're naive and gullible, but it does mean that we don't hold personal grudges. Now, I, I want to wrap up with a story here. I, I mentioned this book more times than I probably ever even should, but Don Carson's father is a book about his dad, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life uh, and Reflections of Tom Carson. I'm going to try to explain this story. I still don't know that I understand all the details exactly, but here's the, the short version of the story that he tells in this, the chapter called Crisis. So Don Carson, well-known um, theologian today, his dad was a just an ordinary pastor of a small church in French-speaking Canada, and he was going to move to an area called Drummondville. And the short version is basically this. His dad was like on the low end of the totem pole as like a small little church pastor, and there was a very well-known pastor called the Spurgeon of Canada from the 1920s and 30s named T.T. Shields. Now, we may never have even heard of him. I had to look him up to learn about him. But T.T. Shields was a larger-than-life, one of those considered like a great man, like a great preacher, huge intellect, uh, just a, a powerhouse of an individual. In the 1920s, he had won a war with kind of some liberalism and some false teaching, and he had really helped restore a seminary and done some great stuff in the 1920s. But in the early 1930s, he was starting to become the guy who only just calls people out all the time. He became highly polemical or critical in all of his preaching, just constantly knocking people down but not really building people up in a sense. So... Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as a young 30-something, went and met with him, spent a day with T.T. Shields, and tried to persuade him to change the, correction, the, the correct course on where his, he was heading. He was heading toward it in a bad way. And he spent all day debating Lloyd-Jones, and he said, you know what, you may be right. And he took the debate back, and he, he ended up saying, no, I don't, I don't agree with you, I'm going to stay where I'm going. So then you fast forward to the 1940s, around 1948, Tom Carson is there, and T.T. Shields basically became kind of a dictator. He kind of became like a a bit of a dictator. Arrogant ego took over. He was just sort of bossing people around and acting in a way that was just not humble, not, 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 honor, not honoring to the Lord. Tom Carson, a very principled man, godly man, was raising money to try to buy a building that they could use for ministry in Drummondville, and a very good opportunity had opened up. I think it was $4,500, which is just hilarious in today's thoughts. So they, they raised $4,500 from all the churches in the area. They made very clear what the money is going to be for, and yet in private conversation, someone had asked Tom Carson his opinion about a decision T.T. Shields had made recently. It was a bad decision, and Tom Carson said he didn't agree with the decision. Well, whoever asked him told T.T. Shields that Tom Carson, this, this little pastor, had disagreed with him, the big shot. The big shot was not happy, and he treated Don Carson's dad very badly. He basically tried to crush his plans to use the money for this building. He then lied and misrepresented his dad, and he tried to get the funds turned in a whole other direction, and the churches were confused, and Tom Carson had to spend months trying to figure this thing out and, and fix the problem. It was a, it was a nightmare scenario, one of, the, one of the big trials of his ministry life. Well, this is the part of the story that I, I just found so wonderful. Don Carson was a little kid when this happened, right? He's like, I don't know, he's very young when this all happens. He doesn't hear about it from his parents. He grows up, 20 years later, he goes to Bible college in the, in the area, right up there uh, in, in Canada. And this is what the son, 
Don Carson writes about his dad. So all this drama he hadn't heard about as a kid. His parents never mentioned it. The main outline of these developments I learned about 20 years later. I was a student at Central Baptist Seminary. Reflecting, now listen, this is his class teacher, his lecturer one day. He's in this big classroom. Reflecting on the abuse that Tom had absorbed, his dad had absorbed, without, real, without retaliation, the lecturer ended his survey of these developments with the comment, one of the first things I want to see when I get to heaven is Tom Carson's crown. Now, Don, the son, is sitting in the room. He's never heard of any of this. He finds out all the persecution his dad underwent from this hotshot pastor, finds out that his dad responded with total graciousness and never even mentioned it at home for 20 years, and the lecturer says, I can't wait to get to heaven to see Tom Carson's crown. And Don's like, that's my dad. I've never even heard this before. So then he said, I had not heard a whisper of these events at home. From my parents, I had only heard positive things about T.T. Shields. That's That's amazing. I can still remember my mom summarizing some of his sermons from the 1930s when she had been a student at, at, the, at the seminary. I recall her f- reflections on one of his sermons, which became the title of one of his books. The McMaster controversy of the 1920s was, was faithfully recounted to me, but nothing of the Drummondville affair was, was told. My siblings were similarly ignorant. The parents had never told this. Can you imagine the temptation to tell this to your kids, how you were mistreated? publicly and shamefully. So the next time I went home from college, he said, I brought this matter up to my dad. The conversation went something like this, me, I've been learning some interesting Baptist history from 1948 and 1949. Dad, oh, uh, it seems you had a pretty significant part to play. What were you told? Uh, So I summarized the events as I understood them, though, of course, at that point, I had not seen the primary documents. He just heard it from his lecture, from his teacher. His dad says, I suppose that's pretty close to what happened. Me, so how come you never told us kids any of this? Dad, after a long pause, there were two reasons. First, you were children of the manse, you know, pastor's kids. And although uh, you have seen the outworking of the gospel, you had also seen more than your share of difficulty, difficult and ugly things, and we did not think it wise to expose you to this history when you were young. Second, Marge and I, that's his mom, Marge and I decided... We needed to protect our own souls from bitterness, so we took a vow that neither of us would ever say an unkind thing about T.T. Shields, and we have kept our vow. Then Don Carson says, a recent note from my sister Joyce, that's his older sister. His sister Joyce wrote him when he's writing this book. His sister says, as I look back on life with mom and dad, perhaps the one thing I recall most vividly is the memory that I don't have. Try as I might, I cannot recollect one time when either of them spoke negatively about another person. Although mom was an extremely astute judge of character, her analyses were well seasoned with grace and the latent potential for redemption. I've heard Don Carson tell that story on a podcast, and every time he's told it in different places, he he gets emotional when he tells it because of the impact of the legacy of his parents. So what we learn here is even when we have been grievously wronged, They made a vow, we're never going to say an unkind word about this man, and we have kept our vow. The only way that's true is because of the roots that they had in the gospel of grace. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, if if we are being honest... 
There are times that we make comments about other people who have offended us or hurt us in some way, and we make those comments in order to injure their public character. I bet everyone in this room has done that at some point. God, please forgive us those debts. But God, I pray as we go forward that we would fight the temptation toward bitterness and unforgiveness. Help us, God, to be more amazed at the depths of our sin and your forgiveness of us than we are amazed at the way someone has offended or sinned against us. Help us to be more astonished by your grace in forgiving our infinite debt than we are amazed that someone has wronged us in some comparatively minor way. God, for those of us locked in bitterness and unforgiveness, please set us free, even right now, by the gospel of grace. Help us to release those debts because you have released our debt in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.